You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. We're taking a short break while we prepare for the next season of the podcast, and so are using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week is from the legendary Bill Sweetnam. Bill combines humility and selflessness in such an inspiring way. It was one of our most played interviews across 2022, and we hope you find it as thought-provoking as we did. Welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Bill Sweetenham. Bill is an Australian swimming coach who first started training athletes in the 1970s in the rural Australian town of Mount Isa. His coaching career progressed quickly and he coached at his first Olympics in 1976 and was then head coach for Australia at the 1980, 1984 and 1988 Olympic Games, as well as the 1982 and 1986 Commonwealth Games. He then went on to be the head coach of the Hong Kong swimming team in 1991 and the Great Britain team from 2000 to 2007. In his tenure with the Great Britain team, they won as many medals at the World Championships as they had at all previous World Championships back to 1973. 
In all, he has coached at five Olympic Games, eight Commonwealth Games, nine World Championships. His swimmers have delivered 27 Olympic and World Championship medals and have broken nine world records. Bill has an amazing presence. He fills the room with his energy and passion. He is a coaching guru in the truest sense of the word. And in this interview, we were joined by four other elite coaches who came to listen to what he had to say. And it was an absolute masterclass. He talks about meeting Nelson Mandela and the great boxing coach Angelo Dundee. He shares stories of his successes and failures and reflects on what he has learned from each. He's also challenging, forthright and motivating. And I left with a soaring sense of energy after this discussion. There were so many highlights. The story he shares about meeting Nelson Mandela and the answer he gave him to the question of what lessons he learned while imprisoned on Robben Island. His views that the coach sees what the athlete can't and the athlete feels what the coach can't and it takes a marriage of both these attributes to produce a winning result. And the importance of investing in your past so that you can see your future. This was a life-affirming conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to help our podcast, which is fully independent and free from ads, you can follow the link to our Patreon page where we offer exclusive content to our supporters. And now, please enjoy our interview with Bill Sweetenham. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Bill Sweetenham, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Paul. Happy to be here. Look forward to the, the next two hours. I'm very much looking forward to it as well. And of course, you've got some of your coaching luminaries or assistants or peers, I should probably say, in the background, and I'm sure we're going to hear from them as well. But Bill, could I start with a really simple question? Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to so far? At my home, I'm on the Gold Coast, a place called Paradise Point, and it is paradise. Uh, Michael just lives down the road from me, so does Tom. I'm in Australia, mainly because not many of us get the chance to leave Australia these days, but we're all very keen. Well, on a dark minus seven day here in Bucharest, I'm very much uh, looking forward to hearing all about life up there in Queensland and some of the stories you've got from Poolside over all the years that you've been uh, coaching. But Bill, could I start with something really simple? Well, simple in one way, but not another, I guess. I'd like to name check some of the great coaches you've had experience with. Nort Thornton, Eddie Reese, Don Gambrill, Michael Boll, who's here listening today. And even I could see boxing's Angelo Dundee. And of course, before we were talking about Eddie Jones. So there's some good names in there and some good experience. From this perspective, Bill, what is it you think that great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Look, I, uh, I met Angelo Dundee at an airport. I listened intently because by chance on one of my flights back from working in Argentina, I was sitting beside this huge mountain of a man and he was a boxer, famous for Rumble in the Jungle. And I introduced myself. We had a great four or five hour talk and discussion and we talked about the great boxing coaches of the world and, uh, of course, Angelo Dundee. And then I got to meet a couple of the boxers and uh, they all spoke so highly of Angelo that I took the opportunity to travel and meet with him and share some ideas. Fortunately, it was the back end of his life and uh, he, he was not enthused too much uh, to share time with me, but he did. And 
he gave me a great quote. He said, never, ever hop in the ring unless your preparation has been superior to all others, regardless of any differentials, high or low, of talent. Now, what great words I learned to live with uh, from a man that had nothing to do with swimming but who I'd pursued to gain knowledge from. And I still remember those days and value his words of wisdom. So all of the other coaches, Eddie Reese, North Thornton, Don Talbot, Don Gamble, Michael Bowl, Ben Titley, Fred Benu, they all bring some very similar abilities to the leadership or man management table. They all have a great degree of honesty. They create trust with the athletes and clientele. I mean, athletes, the people that work with them, and their clientele, their boards and their administration. I never use committees because I don't like committees. So if you take honesty, trust, and achievement and vision, so they're all fast thinkers. All of the great coaches can think very fast on their feet. They have to. So achievement and vision are the two essentials for leadership or for great man management. If you haven't achieved, then you have no right to have a, an opinion. And you haven't got vision, then you have no chance of being a great man manager or leader. So these coaches and these great people had honesty, trust, achievement and vision in performance ahead of opinion, and they were all exceptionally fast thinkers. They were prepared to take risks. They were great risk takers. They looked at something, they evaluated it, they did the pros and cons, and then they took the risks. See, most people talk about risks but don't are not prepared to take them. They all had an inquiring mind. They all wanted to know how it worked. What were the ways that it could be done differently? Was there an opportunity to get a winning point of advantage by applying the skills that you had to get an inquiring mind ahead of the opposition? They all employed good, right and best people. They all appreciated good people. They wanted to work with good people. They wanted right people fit for the, the position and best operators to have. And I've been lucky, lucky or I've been selective. I've had a life of working with good, right and best people and the people that are sitting in that meeting today are all good, right and best people. I don't work. I have no tolerance to work with anyone these days who is not good, right and best. My last 20 years have seen my tolerance levels drop and uh, I don't have the tolerance anymore to work with anyone who's not honest, can't be trusted, hasn't got an achievement record and doesn't have a vision for the future and can't think fast. And these great coaches all have that. I think Michael has it today. I think Tom B has it. Fred definitely has it. David has it. They, they are selective in who they work with. In other words, you don't want to waste time with people or situations that can't yield a return on that investment. So time is money. So these people I pursued, Eddie Reese is probably the best man manager in the world of swimming today. North Thornton was very similar. Don Gamble was an exceptional human being in the area of that, as was Angela Dundee. I just thought they were great. Leadership, leadership is only ever earned. You can't gift leadership. 
You can't get leadership from a ballot box. We have no leaders in, in world politics today. Or very, you can't inherit leadership by longevity. He's been in the job 40 years. Let's give him a leadership role. Worst thing out. He's done a leadership course. Waste of time. These things are not leadership. Leadership comes down to achievement. They've done it and they have a vision for an improved future. So they're visionary based on achievement. Bill, you were lucky enough to receive a Churchill scholarship when you were uh, just setting out as a coach and it allowed you to go to the US and study for a, for a year. How did that experience shape you as a young coach or rather just as a young human being? The time I got my Churchill fellowship, I was due to start my job at the Australian Institute of Sport. I got a, a fellowship that was for six months and I knew that wasn't enough. So out of my own pocket, and I had very little, I put in an extra six months of uh, salary and work to extend it out to 12 months. So I went and studied in the United States. I studied strength and conditioning and I studied speed because I had very little knowledge of either subject. So I knew that I had to do that. Of course, Eddie Reese was one of the coaches, and Greg Troy and Don Gamble, North Thornton, Doc Councilman. I had a great relationship with Doc, which gave me what I felt was an unfair advantage over my opposition coaches. I had done things that they weren't willing to do. A few years prior to that, Laurie Lawrence went and spent uh, 12 months in America, uh, worked with George Haynes. So I thought perception, uh, that he's done that, and look look how it's helped him. So I wanted to go and have a look at how these coaches operated. They all had something different to offer, but they all had those core values, honesty, trust, achievement, vision, and were fast thinkers. And uh, I knew then that I needed to upgrade myself in my coaching, not so much my training. Young coaches come to me today and they say, tell me how to be a great coach. I said, no, you sit over in the stands and you watch and you observe and you make notes. And when you think you've got it all right, you come and tell me how to become a good coach, a great coach, from your observations. I believe that people today are much better copiers than we give them credit for. They have an ability to copy. So uh, I wanted uh, all the coaches I work with to have, or all the athletes that I work with, to have at least part of that. I wanted the difference between opinion and fact. I wanted that difference. I wanted to know that difference. Bill, you went to your first Olympics in 1976 and you described the experience as a shockwave. Can you tell us about it and what it taught you? Well, I'm breaking out in a sweat as we talk when we come to this subject. This was my worst ever experience, but perhaps my most defining experience. I had a swimmer called Stephen Holland. Uh, Stephen was an unbelievable talent and a good person. And I was a young coach. I was 25 at the time I started coaching, 24 actually. When I started coaching Stephen, I knew nothing. I thought I knew everything, but I knew very little. And I coached Stephen the way Laurie had coached him before me and the way I'd been coached and trained in my life. Unfortunately, I was up against the best in the world and we went into that battle with what we thought was an advantage, which wasn't. It was a disadvantage. We trained in a little 20-metre pool in an animal farm at Mount Cravat, and we had all animals around us in cages, and uh, 
every morning we had to clear the duck poop off the side of the deck uh, to get in the pool. And uh, that was when Tracy Wickham came and spent some time with myself and Stephen leading into to Montreal. Uh, we had absolutely nothing. If it wasn't for Stephen's brilliance as an athlete, I'm sure we wouldn't have even got the bronze medal. The Olympics went past me. Luckily, I was sitting in the grandstand because I'd got road tickets with a man called Peter Daland. And Peter Daland had five swimmers on that 76 Olympic team, all medal winners for the US. And he came and got me. He said, Bill, I've watched you. I've listened to you. Come, we're going to go and meet Doc Councilman. I want you to come and I'm sure Doc has got something to offer you. I probably had the best three days in my life listening to Peter Daland and Doc Councilman, fast-tracking knowledge and information and experience to me. But I knew that I'd had a very severe experience with this just came, knocked me over and kept going. I had the choice to get up, dust myself off and uh, try and recover from this situation. So I still live with the experience of Montreal, Stephen Holland, and what I assume is defeat, or what I've termed as defeat. And defeat taught me many, many, many lessons about victories and success and winning. I knew after Montreal I walked out and I thought I am never, ever going to be in this position again. I am going to place in every battle that I fight every challenge that I face, every field of chaos that I encounter, I'm going to place advantage in the path of my swimmer, not not failure. So from that point on, I always had a philosophy of putting advantage first for the athletes that I coached. I wanted them to have an advantage in battle, not a disadvantage. And myself and Stephen went into that battle. The only advantage we had was Stephen's talent. And the disadvantage we had was basically everything else, facility, competition, training partners, a lot. We didn't have any of the advantages of the opposition. Bill, I have this amazing quote from you. I'd like to read it before I ask the question. You say, the experience of the coach must always be in advance of the athlete's talent, but the desperate and obsessive motivation and attitude must be the same. And I'm, I was intrigued by this because you coach so many people at one time. So how do you maintain this obsessive motivation and attitude when you've got so many swimmers that you're leading? I want to show you something, Paul. You can have a look at this. I can see it. It's a 50-centimetre steel ruler. When I first went to England, my first day in the office, I said to the girls, the office girls, I need one of these. I always have. And I was disappointed in myself that I hadn't brought the ruler with me. And the girl said to me, Bill, the lady that does our uh, ordering uh, for stock is off sick and therefore we can't order any new supplies from the stationery department until she comes back. I said, where is the stationery department? She said, it's down in the main office at English Swimming. So I rang them and they said, look, unless it's on the exact form, we can't go and get them. I said to them, I got the girl in the office, I said, come with me. We went down to the stationery department. I gave her $200, £200. I said, now tell me where the shop is where I can buy these rules. She gave it to me. I went and bought 12, 14 of these rulers, 50 centimetres long, real solid steel, came back and gave her the receipt. I said, now 
You don't have to get the rulers. You just have to give me the money back for what I've just spent. That's an easier job for you. You don't need the stationary girl. And she said, why in God's name do you want these rulers? They're marked every centimetre. I said, I want them to measure success of everybody in the office. So I'm giving the first ruler to you. Everything you do in the office, I want you to rate on efficiency 1 to 50. If you get up here near 48, 49, that's very inefficient. If you're down here near 1 and 2, you're very efficient. Do the mass yourself. Now, I want you to do the mass on your ruler, how efficient you were on getting these rulers for me. Remember, I'm the head of the office. I'm the boss. And all you've said to me is, no, you can't. This is too hard. This can't be done. That can't be done. That doesn't fit my mantra. So I gave everybody in the office and said, look, British swimming is going to be judged on the medals and the performance that we do. How are you going to be judged in the office? What judgment are you going to use? I don't want to come around and judge you all the time. I want you to judge yourselves. So I want you to put this ruler on your desk and everything you do in the office, rank yourself on efficiency one out of 50. Every time you rank yourself in the top five, I want you to come to me and tell me as your senior officer, senior person, I want you to come, knock on my door, say, Bill, I just did X, Y, and Z, and I've valued my performance in in the top two or three out of 50. And tell me about it. I want to know how successful you are. I want to live and understand your heart and mind when it comes to how you measure your success in the office. I don't want to hear about your failures. We've all got them. So wherever I operate now, everybody gets a 50-centimetre steel ruler. And I ask them to measure their success. You have to have experience, experience experience-based knowledge. As coaches, most of us learn to train athletes before we learn to coach athletes, and that's the wrong way around. I did it. Many of my era did it. You have to learn to coach before you learn to train. Coach the mind, train the body. You have to learn to coach the mind before you train the physical. So coaching is neck up, training is physical, neck down. And uh, if you can't coach, uh, then your training will be wasted. So the knowledge of, of the coach, if it's going to get a result, a positive significant result must be in advance of the talent of the athlete. Now, talent, what is talent? Talent's accelerated rate of learning. Coaching is accelerated rate of acquiring knowledge. So you want a partnership between the coach and the athlete. I just live every competition I've ever been doing in 50 years. There's a hell of a lot of them. And I swim every race with every athlete that I coach. Every time an athlete that I coach stands on the blocks, I swim every stroke with them. I go down the pool with them. I swim visually with every stroke that young person takes. I know what they represent. I know that I've uh, asked them to come to 100% training requirements. I've asked them to commit to 100%. And therefore, I have to respect that. I want to respect that. I want to acknowledge that. And therefore, at the end of a meet, I rate my performance today as a coach on the least talented athlete and the least successful athlete in the team. I don't judge it. Wow, that's good. Tracy Wickham broke a world record. Rebecca Adlington just won an Olympic gold medal. I look at the athlete, the talent, 
who didn't get the just reward that they deserved. They didn't get, achieve what they were deserving. And that's, I feel for them, and I want to live by that experience, not the, uh, not the rare gifted experience of the super talent athletes. The intelligent coaches uh, will do that. They will judge themselves on the least performing athlete in their team, not the least talented because that's not an excuse. Talents are given. In the high-performance arena, talent is a given. Uh, you don't take a talent to the Olympics who hasn't done 100% training, hasn't attended 100% competitions. And if you do that, if you take them to your own little district competitions, that's your fault. You live with that, but I can't. I can't take people to a competition who don't deserve to be there or get a result. So I hear coaches all the time, oh, they try and pull in, but they don't come to training. I say, well, why have you got them at this competition? Why did you bring them here? If your opinion of them is that low, that they don't come to training, they don't have 100% attendance, and they don't give it their best. It's about optimal performance for the individual ahead of talent. Everybody's got some talent. They have a degree of talent. Your job as a, a mentor, a coach, teacher is to draw that out of the young person. I want that young person to hop out of the pool and say, Coach, that's as good as it gets for me. I've done everything I could and that's my best ever result. Because everybody eventually has to live with their last performance up on a scoreboard. That tells you how good you've been, how good your career's been. And you can't change that. Very few people in the industry or corporate world can do that. The athlete has to. The athlete has to look at the scoreboard eventually and say, whatever's on that scoreboard, that's me. And you have to know that you gave them. When every athlete retires, I go in and look in the mirror and ask myself, did I get the best out of that athlete? No excuses. I can't say, did I get the best out of that athlete who only came six sessions a week? Did I get the best out of that athlete who really didn't try hard? I can't do that. I can't rationalise that. I have to go in and look in the mirror at 50 years of age, uh, 50 years of experience and say, did I achieve without rationalisation, without excuses, without compromise, get that athlete their best result? And if I can't do that, then I fail. Whether it's the highest talent in the pool or the least talent, provided they're both committed to the uh, training system that you've asked them to do. So whenever I fall short, it hurts. It leaves a scar. Bill, I want to pick up this theme of scars and failure, and I want to explore it through compromise, which you talk about a lot in your presentations and your books and so forth. And you talk a lot, I'm going to paraphrase the quote before I give you the question, but you say, there's nothing like the pain of seeing a young person who's dreamed of achieving something, someone who spent every waking moment working towards their goal, someone you really care about, having the realisation of that dream within their grasp and then taken away because of your failure, because of your compromises as a coach. And then you go on to say, every time you compromise in coaching, it bites you in the backside. I wanted to turn the question around and say, when it comes to advising other coaches, parents, leaders, whoever it is, to avoid compromise in their daily actions, what would you tell them to focus on? I'd tell them to focus on daily performance. You can't have 100% success 100% of the time, but you've got to have it a majority of the time. Let me give you an example. I coached a great girl, great young lady, 
who's the godmother of my eldest child, a girl by the name of Michelle Pearson. Michelle was a hell of an athlete. At 26 years of age, I'd coached her for a long time. We went to the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Michelle would always, at training, breathe inside the flags, all the time. She would breathe just before the flags and inside the flags. And I hassle Michelle like there's no tomorrow. So, Michelle, that's going to cost you. There's a price to pay for that. Well, at the 84 Olympics, the 200 free, Michelle took a breath just outside the flags and just inside the flags and went from second to fourth. It hurt her. It hurt me. I thought, I'm responsible. Because if I thought it was going to ruin my friendship with this young lady, 26, 27 years of age, I backed off. I said, no, I'm not going to keep going on that. This is So I, I talked to Michelle, fortunately in the 200 medley, and she got the silver medal and never breathed, never took a breath for the last 25 metres. And uh, the feeling of that was much greater. Whenever myself and Michelle get together, Regardless of all the World Championship medals, Commonwealth medals, Pan Pack medals, we don't discuss them. We discuss the one we lost. I don't say who, the one we lost. I take responsibility and accountability for that. It's mine. It belongs to me as well as her. I compromised in the training pool because of my friendship with Michelle to let her get away with breathing just inside and outside the flags. We saw this year the greatest, one of the great male 100-metre freestylers for this country ever. In the last 25 metres, in fact, the last 20 metres, took two breaths and went from first to a minor placing in the men's 100 free. Australia went from winning the, the gold medal tally to losing it on that performance. Tell me that doesn't hurt. The coach probably doesn't know that happened. If he did, he probably be hurting, or would you say, well, I'm happy with the silver medal? I can't be happy with that. I can't be happy with a compromised performance that's going to give you a compromised outcome for that athlete. Rebecca Adlington, I took Rebecca to the meet in France and she had a terrible meet. She didn't get in trouble. After the meet was over, myself, Bill Furness and... Uh, this young lady, sat in a room where I said, I want to know, Rebecca, what you did wrong in the event today. There was tears from her. There was tears from a coach. We finally, after several hours, come out with the solution. The Olympics, Rebecca Adlington went from second to first in the last stroke because she didn't breathe, and Katie Hoff did. Katie Hoff lives with self-inflicted failure. And Rebecca Adlington lives with self-inflicted success. Take a choice. Which one do you want? The coach watching that, the American coach, I don't think he's coached ever again because it hurt him so badly. I was involved with coaching a girl called Debbie Flintoff King at the Olympics and I'd work with her and a coach, Phil King, and Debbie would run several times a week with a backpack on full of sand, and she had two hills near her home. And she ran up both these hills, and it was just brutal to watch her do this. There's nothing soft or nice about it. It was just brutal. 
but she wanted to do it. She came up with this scheme and she did it twice a week. She had named those two hills after the East German and the West, no, the East, two East German girls who were ahead of her, both drug cheats. At the hurdles in the Olympics, I went down. Her name was Debbie Flintoff. Debbie said to me, I've won. I said, Debbie. She said, Bill, I know I've won. I can't lose. I couldn't lose because how I've trained. I just know I won. Difference is she trained so that she can't be beaten. And that's how everybody has to train. You have to prepare so you can't be beaten. And sure enough, after about an hour, the result come out. Debbie won that event in the narrowest margin in Olympic history. In the narrowest margin of Olympic history, she won that gold medal. That's what I that's I want athletes that I coach to have that attitude and inspiration and aspirations so that I can coach them correctly. Whether you're winning the school 50-metre freestyle or you're winning the Olympic gold medal makes no difference. Anyone that fails because of lack of discipline, because of my coaching influence, it's my fault. I accept responsibility and accountability for that. I don't look for excuses or don't associate blame. And remember, a reason is an excuse and no excuse is a reason. So I'm uncompromising in that part of my life. I grew up in a family where I had a very strict, not-so-pleasant father where there was no, there was only yes or no, nothing in between, and there was only right or wrong. I haven't been able to shape that thought process ever in my life. So for me, it's yes or no. Bill, did you get 100% in your exam? No. So I couldn't say, but I missed two days of school or I was sick or it was yes or no. Bill, did you get it right? No. There was no nothing in between yes or no. Bill, you talk a lot about your father and, and I want to come to that later on and, and talk a little bit about how that experience shaped you, but you talk a lot about compromise and thoughts and you were referencing in there coaching being from the neck up and I've heard you use the Marcus Aurelius quote a few times, life is what our thoughts make us. Why does this mean so much to you? Because if you look at my pocket, you will see a yellow littered pen and a green littered pen, and you'll see a pen with a blue base. But bonos, colours. Green, everything is good. Blue, blue skies, everything is good. Yellow, colour of the sun, everything is good. You'll never see colours within me of black or red. Red is the colour of danger and failure. Black is the colour of the devil. I want to surround myself with people who think they're great thinkers. And everybody in this meeting today is a great thinker. And as you know, I wrote to you about this. Mm-hmm. This is the reason I wanted these people present, because they are the great thinkers of world swimming. And all those people we mentioned earlier, Mel Marshall. Mel Marshall's famous quote was, Bill, or Bill Sweetner, took me from good to great, but there are a lot of tears in between. I said to Michelle, I said to uh, Melanie, I said, Melanie, do you realise those tears you talk about were mine, not yours? Taking someone from good to great, there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of, I want to know how you think. It's not what you know. It's how you think and how you process thoughts and thinking that makes the difference. Olympic champions don't just happen. 
because they're nice people and they're friendly and they're lovable. It happens because they are determined, they're self-directing, they're selfish, and they are drivers of their thoughts. If you don't think winning, you can never be a winner. It won't just happen for you. You might be successful, but you won't be a winner. Winners live the difference. Champions know the difference. Bill, you referenced your father, your upbringing. By your own description, it was poor. It was in Mount Isa. You have built this energy and self-belief in yourself that has carried you all around the world. And you've had great success in doing that with athletes too and other coaches, some of the people that are that are listening in now and are on this call with us. But if you had to build self-belief in someone else, someone who's not an Olympic athlete, someone who's in your family but needs help, where would you start and what would you do? It's a good question and pretty easy for me. First of all, in your training programs, if you're related to swimming to start with, I always throw the curveball, but I never let the curveball win. I'll say to my coach, co-coach or team coach, this afternoon I'm going to do this. I want you to pick up the pieces and then tell the athlete. When I first, as a young swimmer from Mount Isa, I went down to train with Don Tolbert, awful experience initially. Don put me on the blocks. I was overweight. I hadn't swam all winter, Mount Isa, and said last year you swam 110 for the 100 butterfly as an age group swimmer. You're one year older, so you should have improved two seconds. I want you to swim 1.8 for the 100 butterfly. Of course, out of shape, hadn't trained, I swam 120. He abused the hell out of me. I did about 15 100 butterflies, progressively getting slower with poor technique in each one. Don kicked me out of the program. He said, go back to Mount Isa. There's no room for you here. You haven't done, you know. So I went home and packed, but... Don, behind the scenes, sent one of the senior swimmers around to meet with me. A senior swimmer said, ah, don't let Don win. You've got you to have more courage than that. You've got to have more commitment. You're not going to win on your first attempt. You're going to win because of your persistence. And if you come from Mount Isa, you should have persistence. So the next day I went back. He not, never bothered to acknowledge that he kicked me out. He just gave me a training session. A week later, feeling more fatigued, and worse than I was the week before, put me back up on the blocks. You're doing one 100 butterfly, you've got to do one eight. Well, even worse result than the week before because I was tired and fatigued, undernourished uh, because I was staying at his home and uh, he'd put a chain around the fridge, one of those old lever fridge, and drilled a hole in it so I could only open the fridge about an inch. I could see all the good food in there, but I couldn't get my hand on it. So virtually starved myself for a week. Eight letters, nothing else. Finally, after about 10 or 12 weeks, I swam the 1.8. He knew that. He knew what 1.8 was the national record for the 100 butterfly. So I didn't. So I had a learning in adversity situation. I asked Nelson Mandela. I got to meet Nelson Mandela. I said, what did you learn when you had your time at Robben Island? What was the lessons that you learned? He said, Bill, I learned leadership. I learned that I had to be in charge of myself, my mind and my body. I learned through poverty, through chaos, that my character could develop my own style of leadership. 
And I've toured the world, talking to the world's greatest leaders. I've never, to this day, met a leader who learnt their skills from a leadership course. It just didn't happen. They learnt their skills from poverty, adversity, chaos, and their ability to fight and fight hard. So I always take an athlete, put them in a a non-winning situation, a situation where they can't win, and watch how much they struggle. I want to see their ability to struggle against the odds. But when they do that, I get to, I teach us a, a value of three, two, one, three, three competitions at your level of competency, two below your level of competency when you expect to win, and then one which is way, way out of your level of competency. And then in that one, you see who struggles, who fights, who finds a way to get a result. And there you build a relationship of trust and respect on those pieces of adversity that you, for want of a better word, stage through your coaching staff or through other athletes on the team. It becomes a team effort to build confidence and character and attitude. And if you haven't got confidence and character and attitude, your life is going to be worth little. You're not going to succeed in anything. So therefore, my job as a mentor, psychologist, coach, and I think on that subject, I think I'm the best psychologist for every athlete I coach. I want to understand the heart and mind of every athlete and I want to know how they respond to each situation. So I think, uh, I don't know whether I've answered the question well enough, but when I work with people, I can't stand it when people, coaches say to me, they can't do it. They just, they can't do it. They can do it. People can do anything and they can do everything you ask of them if you put it in the right perspective if you place it in the right situation. Young people have unbelievable talent and character that we don't even yet touch the surface of in terms of understanding. Uh, we we know, and you're going to, how old are your daughters, Paul? 15 and 11. Ah, mate, you're going to learn with them and teach them uh, performance. No matter what it's in, arts, ballet, music, sport, education, Your job as a parent is to teach confidence, character and belief. And uh, if you can do that, you'll have just an unbelievable reward at the end of their life. My goal is to take athletes from learn to swim all the way through till they they get married or they uh, uh, get their degree in their profession. I want to take the journey the whole way with them. I don't want to take it. I've watched a lot of footage in preparing for today. and. What I find unique about your communication style is you just mentioned you think you're the greatest psychology psychologist for each of your athletes. I see you, 90% of your communication that I watched was you asking questions, not telling. It's very different and it's quite pronounced. Where did this come from? If you ask Stephen Holland, he will say, I did a lot of telling. Since then, I've learned to ask questions. Can we do this better? Is there a better way, not an easy way, is there a better way to achieve this outcome? Can we do it in a, in a different manner? Uh, what is it going to take for you to meet these goals? They're your goals. I'm only here to help. Can we do it better? Can we? Now, I'm not going to compromise standards. Whatever you say your goals are, that's where the line in the sand is. So I'm going to design programs to be on this long side of the line in the sand. If you 
If you go past that, that's your decision. I, uh, myself and Dennis Persley, in our first years at the AS, and Michael Bowler will understand this, know it, we got the list of the worst swimmer on the team, the least disciplined, was a young man called David O'Bell, one of my swimmers. So we wrote the list of rules that fitted David and applied them to the team. So he took the lowest common denominator. First afternoon after he signed this, and they'd all signed it, I went out to the pool. Here he is in the middle of the pool using the F word prolifically. I called him over. I said, David, we just signed a code of conduct. He said, yeah. It said no swearing on the deck. He said, I'm not on the deck. I'm in the pool. I turned everybody into a bush lawyer. I said, okay, back, change, change all that. Now, what are your goals and targets? Write it down. What are you prepared to do to achieve these goals and targets? Goals are competition-related. Targets are training-related. What added advantage will you bring and deliver to the team, your teammates? Hard work, commitment, dedication, talent, attitude. What will you bring? What will you deliver as an added advantage to the team? And what do you expect of me as the coach? Do I, do I have to fill the drink bottles up with? And do I have to drive you to training? What do you expect? You write them down. No more than one page. Sign it. Bring it to me. I'll read it. And if I agree, I'll sign it. That's our, that's our agreement. And we both must stick to it. If for any stage that agreement is broken by you or me, then we have to renegotiate it. The athlete knows where they stand. I know where the athletes stand. Simple, four questions. Makes everything easy. And that gives you areas to talk about. Barry, sit down. I want to talk about your goals. How do you feel your goals are going? Are your targets in relationship? I know you said, you know, you want to be an Olympic finalist. How do you feel your targets are aligned with that Olympic time? It just gives you areas. So every week I would pull out one of those agreements and rediscuss it with the athlete, just asking questions. So for me, uh, it was pretty important to be able to have a communication. I think uh, Michael's sitting here uh, listening, and Michael's an expert at it. Michael's got uh, great skills in this area. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maybe at this point I will ask Michael if he's there, if it's okay. You've just heard uh, Bill give you a great compliment on being a wonderful question asker, Michael. There's a lot of people listen that aren't great athletes, that aren't great coaches, but they want to be better. They want to be better around the dinner table at home. They want to be better around the coffee table at work. 
there any advice you could give them on asking better questions to unlock potential? Well, I think it's not only asking questions, it's being authentic. I think that's the big thing. I think certainly you've got to ask questions if you want to learn and you've got to have people who you're asking the question to that you respect. And I think, you know, with Bill, that's probably his greatest attribute. Like I think everywhere Bill's gone, he's had success, whether it's in England, in Hong Kong, in Australia. So I think when you're talking about someone like Bill, when he says stuff, you tend to listen a little bit more attentively. So I think you've got to ask questions, but you've got to ask questions to the right people. And not only do you have to ask questions, but you've got to be willing to make change. I think there's a lot of people ask questions, but they're very set in their ways and they're not prepared to make change. I know there's someone who once told me, and I'm not sure if this is a correct fact, but she said that of the top 50 tennis players in the world, those top 50 know what they've got to do to improve their game, what changes they've got to make, and they follow up those changes and they actually change. And the second 50 from 51 down know what they have to do as well but they're not prepared to action and actually do what they know they need to do. So I think that's a very important part to me. So, you know, finding someone who you trust and respect, who you'll listen to, um, and they're going to probably tell you stuff that you don't like to hear, but if you want to get better and if you want to improve, you're going to be willing to make that change. I might come back to Bill on this topic or this idea of change because, Bill, you talk a lot about behaviour contagion when it comes to coaching. And the fact that the coach observes what the athlete cannot and the athlete feels what the coach cannot. How can this insight around behaviour contagion be applied to normal life? I stole that quote from a very, very famous coach, Duncan Lang, who coached Daniel later. And uh, I went to Duncan. I'd known him for a long time. I said, Duncan, tell me about coaching and training Daniel. And he said, Bill, there's a relationship the coach sees what the athlete can't and the athlete feels what the coach can't. And it takes a marriage of both those attributes to produce a winning result. Great words. I, I pursue intelligence wherever I can, from for whoever I can. So I look for that in every aspect of life. And great leadership is never popular. And popular leadership is never great. That's a quote from a younger son, Tim. So uh, he got it. He got those feelings from me. So if you're going to bring about improvement-based change or change-based improvement, you've got to get the improvement back right before you can make change. Too many people, as Michael just said, want to change before they have the improvement factor decided. You have to decide improvement, which is education, maybe not traditional education, but it's education in your field of endeavour. So you want improvement. What does improvement mean for this athlete? And then you say to them, well, this is how we have to change. This is the change. You don't say this is how we change and hope for improvement because that's not a very good equation. So always look for each athlete, how can I improve this athlete? How can I improve this person, which will in turn improve their performance? I want to improve this person before I can improve this performance. Our politicians and many of our corporate leaders don't know that. They don't understand that. I look at the person and say, how do I improve and help this person? And then I ask the person, that's what we've got, that's what we want. Now, how do we change? Tell me 
how you see change happening. Rather than having change, telling them this is how you need to change, and you'll hear that on every deck in the world, every training session, 365 days a year. You've got to change your stroke. You've got to change your attitude. You've got to change it. Change, an awful word, a loving word, but it's no good change if you don't tell them how. So you want to say, this is improvement. Now you tell me how you've got to change. And then you're on a winner because you're making the athlete take responsibility, think about the situation. They may not make the right decisions. They may not. I, I spent a lot of time with a guy called John Medina in Seattle. John wrote the book Brain Rules for Baby and Brain Rules. And I went through with him and a coach called Dick Hanula in Seattle and just a fabulous time. And I learned a lot about psychology. I learned that you have to talk all the time about improvement, improvement-based performance, improvement-based change, improvement-based attitude, improvement-based commitment. Too many people put the opposite. You'll hear it every deck, every pool in the world, 365 days a year, except for the few rare coaches that understand psychology. They understand the psychology of performance of the individual athlete. What I wanted to do is you've had a lot of pain in your life, actually. You've had multiple surgeries following a really bad accident. Twice in your life, you've had bad accidents. You've grown from poverty. You started in Mount Isa. And for many people listening, uh, if you Google Mount Isa, you'll see it's a pretty, pretty rugged place. You've got to the point in your journey where you've coached multiple world records and all these wonderful people and you've named named so many of them in this interview. But if I could take you back to Man Eyes or introduce you to that boy that's being bullied by his father growing up in poverty, and if you could turbocharge the learning that that person was going to have, what advice would you give give your younger self? I think if if you really want to learn, if you've got great teaching skills and great learning skills, See, the athlete's ability to learn is always greater than my, my ability to teach. So if you look for the athlete who has the ability to learn in advance of your ability to teach. I coached, I taught a little boy when I was only young myself, a thalidomide boy, to learn to swim in Mount Isa, in the Mount Isa pool as a penalty from my father. This young boy had his foot on his right uh, leg where his knee should be and his knee halfway up his thigh. He had that thalidomide treatment. And this little boy turned up every session, every afternoon for seven weeks of the school holidays. Always early, never missed a session, even when he was sick, hopped in on one leg and was just happy to be teaching and learning how to swim. The best thing that I've ever done in my life and my career was teaching Tony Spargo, name stays with me forever, how to swim. In six weeks, he could swim 50 metres backstroke, referee approved, and 50 metres butterfly and front crawl, referee approved. Those days, he got disqualified for his breaststroke kick, obviously, so he didn't get that. But what an achievement for any young coach that wants to know if they can coach and teach. Teach a handicapped person. Teach a disabled person how to swim, mentally, physically, attitudinally. My son took from me a great 
lesson. And at, at 36, he does it, he does it on the Gold Coast, he now lives in Melbourne. Twice a week, he goes and hands out food and drinks for the homeless people on the street. I never asked him to do it, but he did it. He did it because he wanted to do it. He, I asked him why he did it. He said, Dad, I saw what you did in your life when we were swimming and uh, the tough upbringing you had, and I knew I had to do something special to measure up in your eyes. You didn't have to measure up in my eyes, Tim. You had to measure up in your own eyes. He said, well, that's what I meant. He said, I wanted to measure up in my own eyes to the standards you as a father had set. And uh, as a result, my eldest boy is the head of submarine warfare training today in the Australian Navy. And uh, my son-in-law is the youngest captain ever of the HMAS Anzac out of Perth. So success based on attitude and character breeds success. Success is luck. See, I want to fight the word luck all my life. I hate the word luck. I've never been lucky. I don't want to be lucky. And I don't want to coach people who rely on luck. Luck is the worst word in the English language. Luck is created by yourself, by effort, commitment, energy, enthusiasm, passion. That's luck. Luck is created within your own body based on. And everybody you take to an optimal performance from a life is based on your teachings and your attitude. I want to finish with, it might be an impossible question, particularly as you've got so many of your peers uh, listening. Okay, this is the last question. Yeah. I'm going to ask each coach after we finish here or each, for something that I taught them. No, you so go ahead, Bill. Well, you go ahead. You go ahead and ask it. Get ready. I base it on a few years back, I got every... Uh, global female 400 front crawl swimmer I ever coached. Uh, there was 22 of them from my whole era, from my early days, Tracy Wicker, Michelle Ford, right through to my long boil years. Got them all on Skype and I said, I've got some questions for you. But you be brutally honest. I want, and I think you've got to do this with your ex athletes. I know Michael does it with Stephanie Rice. First question is, was I too hard on you as an athlete when I coached you? Of course, it brought a lot of laughter, funny comments, but eventually the girls agreed, the women agreed. Well, at the time, we thought yes. We thought you were far too demanding on us individually. Okay, that's a tick for me. The next question was, training with me, did you achieve what you believe your best outcome, your best possible outcome? Now, these 22 women who have won on the world stage or been on the podium on the world stage, I was pretty hard. I was a hard coach. There was just attitude, character, confidence. They all talked about it for a while and went off air and said, we'll come back to you. 20 minutes later, they came back and said, Bill, there's no question that you got the best out of us as athletes. We don't believe we could have got a better result in another environment. Another tick. So I thought, well, two ticks, that's pretty good. So I said to the woman, I said, I've got a third question, but I'm not going to ask it. One of my much older, late, earlier athletes said, Bill, we're all big women now. We're all grown up. Ask the effing question. We're not little girls anymore. 
I said, okay, given your time over, would you come and train and coach with me again? Hysterical laughter. No, no, no way. No way we're going through that again. But eventually a day later they came back to me and said, yeah, yeah, we would. That's what I think as a coach you have to do. As a coach you have to invest in your past to see your future. If you don't invest in your past, it's not possible to see your future. In other words, if you make mistakes all through your coaching career and you don't change and you don't improve, then nothing, nothing good comes of it. You have to have to address improvement even when it hurts. And you have, have to be brave enough to address it. With that amazing thing, I think you should address these coaches and see what they say. Coaches, uh, whoever's there, and these coaches, Paul, are very special people for me. I, I selected these people to come on because I have great belief in them, the exercise physiologist. And remember, I call everybody a coach. I don't see Tom B as an exercise physiologist or David Pine. I see them as coaches. The sports scientist is a coach just as the coach is a sports scientist. So the coach must be a sports scientist and the sports scientist must be a coach. So, guys, if you want to add anything, try not to be too uh, damning, uh, but here's your chance. Who should we talk to first, Bill? Who would you like to bring? Uh, Michael Bowles. Unmute myself. He's probably gone to sleep. No, I'm here. I'm here. I'm wearing my Texas T-shirt. You'll be happy, Bill. No, I think, you know, there's many, many lessons Bill's taught me over the years, and I think Bill probably won't remember this, but, you know, back when I was swimming with him back in the 1970s, he used to sort of get us all together for talks. He'd had these talks, and we'd all listen very attentively. And this is going back to the 1970s, so it's what's that... 40 years ago, and I remember him saying to this group of athletes that, you know, you've got to learn to be resilient. Every day there's going to be people that try and put you off your game and you've got to have the mental strength to be able to not let anyone affect the way you are. And I think it's something that I hold true to this day. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who will try and get under your skin, who will try and upset you, who will try and put you off your game. But I think you've got to be ready for that. You've got to be understanding of that. And your mindset's got to be so strong is no matter what anyone says to me today, I'm not going to be derailed from what I've got to do today. So it's something that I, I take not only as a swimming coach, but as a person through. So I think that was very, very, very good. But um, at the Olympic level, I've been lucky enough as a coach to go to five Olympics, which have been fantastic. There's something we all aspire to as coaches and have been lucky enough to have some success there. And I think Bill's been instrumental in my mindset of just understanding that, you know, the preparation for your athletes has got to be uncompromising. It's got to be better than anyone else that they're competing against. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be world-class. And all those messages that Bill delivered to me when I was a swimmer with him, but not only then, in the last eight years, nine years, I meet with Bill fairly regularly for coffee and, and chats, and he's always preaching that you've got to be ready on the day to do three good swims, a heat, a semi and a final. If they're not conditioned, uh, if they've cut corners, if they've taken shortcuts, like Bill said earlier on, if you've compromised your preparation under the bright spotlight of the Olympic flame, you're going to come unstuck. And I think with the athletes, I've been lucky enough to have a little bit of success at the Olympic Games. And I think that those messages have really stuck through with me to this day. And I've got one more Olympics left in me. <laughs> I'll be using those same, same mantras going into Paris. So I'm very appreciative of all the expertise and guidance that Bill's given me over the years. It's been very helpful to me and not only to me, but also the swimmers that I've coached by association in the program. 
Thank you, Michael. They're tremendous words. And it's great to see that the messages have gone from Bill to you and have also been successful. I think in the scientific community, that is a proof and evidence that things work. Bill, who would you like to ask next? Whoever wants to put their hand up. I can see. I'll go next. I can see Tom with his hand up. Tom, good man. Yeah, so I've worked very closely with Bill. He's just a very, very good teacher. When he was talking about questions, he would ask me questions. Tom, what, what you just did just now, does that make a difference for tomorrow? And then I had to think, maybe not. And then why did it just, why did it do it then? And I think continuously there's questions like that fired at you that you just have to really be on your game and set really high standards for the athletes, but also for the staff. And um, I think there's many stories, but maybe just one, uh, like yeah, we're at a pool and then I see uh, Bill's car parked on a car park and park crook in the car park. And I'm like, Bill, you have to, you know, park your car. Well, uh, you're going to get a fine. And he said, um, nah, I only give myself one chance to park my car well. And if I don't get it right, I have to live with it. So if I get a fine, it's my own fault. I should have get, gotten it right from the first time. So I think like all these questions and, and um, teachings taught me a lot. And I think working for athletes as well, I think when there's a, an important session going on, he can really speak to the minds of the athletes. So they're really enthused and, and, and give themselves um, everything that they can to actually deliver. Um, so I think, yeah, he's a, he's a very, very good teacher. One of the best that I've, I've worked with. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that story. It's a great one. <laughs> I don't think I could leave. Many. I'd be in too much. Uh, I'd be in too much debt if I did that. You've got uh, perhaps David, uh, and then uh, I guess Gustavo. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's David Pine here, and, and thanks, Bill, for another uh, insightful hour that we've just shared. And the journey that we've been on today, I think, mirrors the journey uh, that I've had with you over this last thirty-five years. And people often look simplistically, as you said today, it's not about coaching the swimmer or training the swimmer. And it's not even about coaching the coaches. It's really about coaching ourselves, be it we're a swimmer or a parent or a professional in a business setting or in a family setting or a social setting. And so those values and ideals that you've espoused and articulated so well today and right through the journey that I've shared with you. So self-belief and no compromise. So just knowing where you are. So when uh, I hear you talk with coaches or parents or, as we're doing now, uh, sharing with like-minded individuals, that's what comes to me. I hear, well, these are messages Bill's talking to swimmers or Bill's talking to business people. Uh, But I reflect on those and I always come back to that. So what's in it for me and how you engage with that and how you apply that? So Knowledge is out there as we we live in the digital world. It's easy to get that and we all have opinions. But for me, it's that sort of reflecting on those things and then trying to implement that to make the place better. Thanks, Paul. Gustavo in Argentina, I guess. Hello, how are you? Good morning here because it's the 5 o'clock a.m. Make a point here, Gustavo. Gustavo is the main coach in the world who knows my systems and methodologies. I've spent more time with Gustavo in Australia and in Argentina, if you talk about Gestapo and Bill Sweetnam, if I said, ask me a question and then ask Gestapo, he will give you exactly the same answer to the question you asked me. He has every bit of knowledge and experience that I have as a coach during the time that I spent one-on-one with Gestapo in Argentina and in training camps in Australia during the last 10 years. When I had time to spare, I tried to give Gustavo every single bit of knowledge that I had uh, for his coaching and training. I hope it's worked. 
Okay, Paul. Thank you, Bill. But uh, for me, Bill is uh, like I say, is uh, like a mentor in the swimming and in the life. In the last ten years, when he came to Argentina for first time, he pushed. I think he pushed uh, a big effort in change the mind of the coach. First, uh, Bill tried to give us the thinking about the the power of the mind, believing in in yourself and produce the change in Argentina for the for the swimming. It was a big experience. When I was to Australia, I tried to to learn more of for the swimming, but Bill push the limits of the coach for me and the swimmers in understand the main of the coaching. Like Bill say before, trying the neck for the body and coach the main for the up. Was interesting the experience and Paul, thank you for the invitation and sorry for my English. I need practice one or two days for a tone now for speak more fluency. No, it's fine, Gustavo. It's good to talk to someone from Argentina. Buenos Aires, one of my favorite cities in the world. So oh. <laughs> But Bill, I Thanks. think these words, no compromise, self-belief, power of the mind, mentoring and leadership is probably a great place for us to finish. So I'd like to thank you for today. It's been um it's been a real treat for me on a on a dark and dreary day to spend a bit of time talking to you and learning about you. Okay. Paul, can I leave a challenge? You can the coaches that are listening to this, and hopefully there's a lot of coaches, where is training and coaching headed into the future? We saw the Olympic Games where we saw some spectacular ladies in the women's 200 free. We saw Emma McKeon, coached by Michael Bowl, uh, win the event, outstanding, outstanding result, uh, coming from a 100-200 metre background, uh, accuracy. Uh, we saw... Ariana Titmus uh, swam well in the four and the two, uh, similar result, but a completely different training background. Michael was largely sprint-based with Emma. Dean Boxall was endurance-based with Ariane. And then we saw Maria Belmonte, Delfina Pignatelio. Uh, we saw Kate Ledecky coming from a very much endurance-orientated program with little speed. All three similar outcomes from three completely different backgrounds. The future of training and coaching in the world today, as it stands, individualization and specialization. So coaches, think about if you had the opportunity to coach a swimmer like Ledecky or, or Balmonte or Pigatayo, or if you had a chance to coach a swimmer like Titmus, or you had a chance to coach a Kate Campbell or Emma McKeon, all swimming that 200-metre event, how would you apply practices to the individual athletes on a specialised basis? If you can do that, you've learned a hell of a lot from these Olympics. You've learned how to train and how to coach. All the best, guys. And uh, Ben Titley, if you get to watch this. And uh, Fred, all the best. All the coaches uh, that I've had work with over the years. And uh, Dave McNally, I wish you well in your future in your coaching. And Paul, I wish you a great future in your line of work. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been a it's been a real honour to spend some time with you today. And I I love uh, I love listening to the Australian accent. I love the stories. I didn't think I was going to hear about Nelson Mandela and Muhammad Ali today. Uh, we did, and I can't wait to share it with the world. All good. 
Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to the great coach, Bill Sweetnam. Some of the key highlights for me were Bill's view about the corrosive effect of compromising as a coach and how you must prepare so that you can't be beaten. The story he shares about meeting the amazing boxing trainer Angelo Dundee, who amongst others coached Muhammad Ali and taught him that you should never enter the ring unless your preparation has been superior to others. His thoughts on learning to coach the mind before you learn to train people's bodies and his belief that everybody's got some talent and your job as a mentor, a coach, a teacher is to draw that out of the young person. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Stephen Duffy, who said, Great interview, Paul. Good insight into Justin's empathetic leadership style. And Gavin Sweet, who said, An excellent podcast, great advice, and understanding of leadership. Thanks, Stephen and Gavin. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And if you have any feedback, you can contact us using the details in the show notes or from our webpage, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.